Welcome to another episode of the Worldcraft Club podcast. I am your host today, James, and joining me today is Marcus. How are you doing, Marcus? I am doing great, James. Excited for this episode. Oh, it's going to be a good one. How about you, Seth? You're here too. What are you doing? I am waiting with anticipation for this episode. Which explains why you're positively quivering in front of the camera right now. It was absolutely. Odd. I wanted. I wanted an explanation. Quivering. Anticipation's a good one, and now I understand why this whole situation seems so strange to me. Uh, so anyway, you're probably wondering why I brought you all here today, and that is in case this episode just popped up in your podcast feed at the rando. We are talking about state of war. So Marcus, what does that mean? We're going to be talking about uh, the narrative or just the world, what all the exciting bits usually that there is a war going on. There's some kind of struggle, uh, two factions, two oppositions, two ideals, or many. It could mm, be a multi-front war yeah. uh, uh, is usually going on. And we want to talk about what does that mean for the world in large? Kind of like the whole, not just the war itself, but the whole brushstroke across the planet across the land across whatever world or many planets whatever your world is encompassing yeah. uh what does that mean for from the soldiers to the civilians to the land itself to economy what yeah. does that all affect yeah exactly and, and this is super sensible because pretty much every like you know a great epic tale we have has some sort of a story of war associated with it in the background so all of the crap going on around that is kind of what we're talking about. That means that's, that's great. Yeah, 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 totally. Good summary, Marcus. Seth, your thoughts. I think this is a more difficult topic than most people think. And I think it's a more difficult topic than most people think because we are not actually readily acquainted with it. That is to yeah. say, we don't live in a state of war. Yeah, and yeah. And when we look historically at people who do, we're presented with two different kinds of wars, mm. right? We're presented with traditional ancient war in which casualties are generally pretty low, often as low as 5% of the armies engaging. Really? Then we're also presented with our historical examples from World War One and World War Two, and the various revolutions that have happened in the 20th century where casualties rise into the millions. We have very disparate examples of what war actually is. Yeah. And we have none of them right now. At least not here. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's a better way to better way to say it. We don't have them in our country. If you're listening to this in the US, most of the world is not in an active war zone. Though there are certainly some parts of the world where yeah, yeah. It, you know people are in an active war zone. So I think this this subject is is actually a little bit trickier than it might seem at first blush. And so I'm really excited to sort of break it down and talk about how the definition of war, how the world builder defining war impacts the impacts. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's right on. And I think you're, I think it's sensible as well that you mentioned even the, the technological impact on war because it's the most recent wars we've had where we have been more mechanized and capable of mowing down wave after wave of soldiers, which is where you know the, the Russian military strategy of more men than they have bullets kind of comes into play and all kinds, yeah. of, uh, all kinds of stuff like that where the Imperial Guard from Warhammer 40K get their stra strategies right. from, just keep throwing bodies at them. And... Um, that that's very very different from a medieval conception of war, um, where I, I'd imagine um, disease played a massive role in that as well. But you, you were more interested in taking certainly with nobles hostages. Like yes. if you um, if you check it out, like Game of Thrones, right? Very very few of the major protagonists, especially those from great houses, died in warfare. Almost all of them were killed by rivals, poisoned, like blown up. Any number of things that happened to them were usually not actually during warfare because it was far more profitable to take Jamie Lannister as a prisoner than to behead him right there. And um, that, that's, an interesting, that's an interesting kind of side effect to it is the actual uh, the human cost of war was mm -hmm. very different in, in, in prior eras. 
And uh, now we have beyond mechanized warfare, we have um, really more information-based and digital warfare taking place. You think about drone strikes and, and things like that, that removes us from the impact of war. So I'd say in some ways, like, you can make the argument that we most certainly are at war in a lot of places, and um, but we are carrying out that using using weapons that um, cause us to not feel the stroke of an axe or the mm. uh, dare I say intimacy of warfare up close. We we experience it digitally from with the United States Chair Force. You know, guys sitting in warehouses flying drones. It's so fascinating how removed we are. Even mm. as you're mentioning our soldiers, there yeah. is a sense of distance because often what they're interacting with is a screen, right? They're, they're, they're launching a missile, they're shooting something. Um, yeah. Just as a real weird sidebar, I don't know if any of you listening watch the YouTube channel Smarter Every Day. Look it up. It's really awesome. But he recently got onto a nuclear submarine. Ooh. and did a, a bunch of videos talking about that. The state of technology is unreal. The weapons that our military and militaries around the world have developed are just so far beyond conventional combat that, that it's crazy, right? Yeah. And, and so you think about, okay, what are wars in the future going to look like? Honestly, we're getting into the information age. Wars in the future are going to be over before they even start fighting. Mm -hmm. It's literally going to be one side is going to know they're at war. The other side is not even going to know they're at war. And then somebody's going to sneak a nuclear submarine up to their shores and boom, there's a capital gone. And then their city's bought out by the corporation. Oh, <laughs> well, that too. Well, I mean, we might be getting there. <laughs> Yeah. Cyberpunk 2077, here we come. What's interesting, what do you say about when he's looking at all this technology and that it's so far ahead of what, what is practical, what we think. And I don't know if, if anybody's a fan of like war documentary specials on like TV and everything. If there's like a new episode or a new documentary, watch these snipers go through boot camp. If you actually catch the footage date at, in the credits... It's always at least five years old. So any kind of like new, see what our military new has, it's always yeah. five years old because mm. of course they're not going to tell you what they really exactly. have. Have you seen the, the new Invisible Shields coming out? I heard of them. I heard. Yeah, uh, yeah they're crazy. They, they pretty much erase anything that is horizontal. So they allow vertical lines and they erase horizontal lines. So if you set it up in front of a tree and then walk behind it, it looks like you disappear. Mm. Huh. It's absolutely crazy. You can find them on YouTube too. All of this though kind of serves to come back to this point for us is that we are, we are detached from our wars, which is, which is an interesting thing when you, are, when you are writing fiction that takes place closer to a battlefront or where the kind of impact of war is a little bit closer to home when people's uh, family is involved in the war, when there are uh, real costs of being near the front line, or there is a large cost to, I don't know, your, your home industries or big changes in your culture. Because the thing about it is right now, we have war weariness as a country, even detached from war. So one of the things I've been finding interesting about this is like, how does one keep a war going? <laughs> you know, like, how do you keep mm. this happening? Because like right now we have a, um, you know, very, very large, like fairly, you know, serious and mounting political influence that are saying, hey, end the wars. You know what I mean? That's, yeah. that, is a, that, is a, that is a position um, held by a lot of folks. And I wonder how a peasant like somebody who is who just knows that they had to send their their husband off to war um, would handle that when the stakes are more real and more close to home. Whereas we are very detached from this and still kind of have a sense that we should be more concerned and we should be bringing this to an end. So, what, what do you think are good reasons how a state could retain? war if it, if it felt the need to do it even if their cause is righteous how do you keep your people motivated to that i think it's a lot to do you know uh minds and hearts win wars uh if you yeah. have enough support uh that's the 
that can do more for your uh, campaign than actual uh, people out on the battlefield. Mm. Um, and, you know, in a more practical sense, it could be a, you know, there's a resource thing involved. Uh, some wars were won by simply just camping outside of the other person's Attrition. kingdom or city and Staying just, out. yeah, and just like, well, nothing's coming in or out and we have supply lines and you don't, so we'll just sit here and wait for you to sign the surrender papers or what have you. In a, say, kingdom, usually there is your population that's doesn't really worry about getting swept up in the war, and then there's your population that uh, is already, like, assigned to the army, you know, or to your military. Yeah. Uh, whether that is your, you know, countries that you have, you know, that are part of the kingdom's territory that you just basically outsource as recruitment stations, mm -hmm. or if on a more galactic scale, if you just have whole recruitment planets yeah. That basically that population, it just serves as more men <laughs> on the front lines. And as well as the same deal goes with resources as well. Uh, it could be a threat to any one of those also, but sustaining it is, you know, do they have a strong sense of resources? Do they have a strong sense of controlling their information? to their supporters mm. because this could be you know there could be the level of you know what the people know and what the war is fault on the battlefield itself and yeah. then there is the politics that go behind it maybe in the shadows so so that makes me think of 1984 we've always been at mm -hmm. war with eurasia right like that was the that was how in 1984, they had a really, really powerful propaganda kind of right. machine that was operating operating in England, and they and they fed people news from the war, and it was basically pure unadulterated patriotism that like kept them like engaged, and it's like, oh yeah, them those oh, yeah. devils over there, and um, mm -hmm. because they could control the flow of information. Mm -hmm. they, they retained a state of perpetual war that was always the reason why they could do the things they wanted to do. So it's like the government must do this for your safety because our, our existence is at risk. So it motivated mm -hmm. the population kind of recursively. <laughs> yeah, I think there are a number of different things. And Marcus, I think you've highlighted the, the primary requirement for victory is that people are actually willing to, to go to war. At, at its most basic if your population is unwilling to fight then you can't make them fight there's nothing you can do to a population that is unwilling yeah. now you can motivate them a variety of different ways uh, a tyranny can motivate them through fear a yeah dictatorship might be able to motivate through propaganda and manipulation uh, or you might be able to motivate through patriotism. Like there are all sorts of different ways of motivating people to do things. But if they're not at their core willing to go, then you can't win. Then you can't fight. Like you're not going to have a war. Uh, I think there are, there are two other things though that are are sort of necessary, and that is there has to be an enemy. Mm. People actually have to believe that they're fighting an enemy. Yeah, you can't fight someone who's not your enemy perpetually. You might be able to convince someone to do that for a short period of time, but unless you feel like there's a threat, humans can't maintain that state. And then the other thing, so the third piece of it is, is resources. There have to actually be enough resources for a fight to take place. So yeah. I, think, I think when we're talking about this from a world-building point of view, we need to take these these things into consideration, right? We need to take the threat into consideration. We need to take the hearts and minds into consideration. Yeah. And we need to take resources into consideration. Hmm. Which is a, an, an interesting thing. It's You talk about resources because one of the resources is, is literally just manpower. Like uh, mm -hmm. how many people can you put on the front? And the thing that's been kind of blowing my mind is how recent wars have really changed us as a culture going forward. It was World War II that put women in the workplace by effectively eliminating enough men that it had to happen, um, yeah. mm -hmm. which, is, which is insane when you think about it. And um, 
those kinds of secondary impacts of war, I find fascinating. The use of resources yeah. and the industrialization of the U.S. largely owed to mm, manufacturing absolutely. to to renew America's uh, basically fighting fighting machines to mechanize America's military. Right. Um, this Women stuff is becoming the war machine. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And uh, long before Iron Man was on the scene and uh, <laughs> making another war machine. But um, yeah, that, that, that's, that, that all kind of just like interests me. All this stuff around, around the margins all really fits together. And I think you're right, Seth. Like really, it's kind of like, can you retain the morale of your people? And understanding that morale of, of, of your people and your fighting force and the people back home is related to a few things and they do not have to connect with the reasons for the war. Right. right. Like oftentimes like we'll come up with a reason for it. Um, if I recall, World War One was effectively an arms race. Yeah. And um, there was a series of different arms races. And then uh, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated. And uh, to war we go. You know what yep. I mean? As if we cared about the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Exactly. And like, that was the, that was the excuse in, in essence to, um, to eliminate threats. I mean, like arms races are scary because you don't know if you trust the people next to you. And when you see they're amassing arms, you go, Oh crap, I better build some up too. It's not, it's not like everybody's just like, Hey, let's just have a race and uh, let's see who can blow each other up the best. It's like, no, we're getting really antsy and it's building up pressure. And the Archduke Ferdinand was just the pin that, that popped it. But then you have to come up with a reason, which is why when you look at like British propaganda in that era, they'd talk about the Hun talking about the Germans. And there was, there was a certain racialized connotation to that as well. So they built an enemy out of it and they inspired people's morale by saying, this is for your existence. When really everybody was kind of to blame for that one. Like it wasn't really quite so <laughs> clear cut, <laughs> but yeah. um, everybody thought they were fighting for their survival. And um, in many ways, yep. you know, they were. So uh, I don't know. That's just kind of interesting to piece that. It is. <laughs> it is. So as we're taking these things into consideration and we're coming up with reasons for them, like reasons to fight, mm. I think it's interesting that we don't need a grand reason. Nope. It, could, it could be as simple as one person who happens to be in charge wants the land of another person. So a great example of this, when I lived in Ghana in West Africa, there was a civil war. I, I shouldn't call it a civil war. There was a, a war between two tribes. One of them owned the land, but had a much smaller population. And so they rented the land out to another, a neighboring tribe. Hmm. The thing that sparked the war was a guinea fowl. A fight broke out. Somebody ended up dying. And then the tribe who had not liked their landlords for quite a while and had felt somewhat oppressed by their landlords, decided to go and kill a bunch of them. And then it escalated. And it escalated to the point where we had to be evacuated and the military had to come in and suppress everybody. And generations of petty grievances erupted as neither side wanted to back down. Hmm. And if the government had not been there to to step in and control the situation, it would have escalated until other tribes got involved or until one of the sides was dead. Mm. But, but, the, but the motivation for it wasn't some great sin. It wasn't some epic thing. It was just a long history of people not getting along, right? For, for a long history of friction. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So when we're building a world that's at war, I don't think we need to rush to, hey, this is a holy crusade. Hey, this is a, a group of people who are coming in to conquer, you know, a, a large swath of land or conquer a kingdom. Hmm. If we're looking at real life examples, most conflicts start because two people have competing interests on a small scale. And that small scale builds up over time until they just can't live with each other. Hmm. At least that's traditionally how how wars come about. So the, the same thing, you, you can, you can go back into interpersonal relationships with a lot of this as well. Like it's um marriages usually dissolve, not because of some great 
you know, flashy sin that sometimes happens, but most of the time they dissolve over finances and taking care of kids and the way people brush their teeth and like <laughs> things like that and where they squeeze the toothpaste from and these little minor irritations build to a point where uh, a friendship or a marriage, as I said, could be broken. And I think you can apply those things almost on like a national scale to some extent. So that's, that's a fascinating thought right there. I think would it be safe to say that War is basically an extreme of a them and us mentality. Mm. I think yeah. so. And I, I, I think at least that ingredient has to be there in order to maintain morale. Like yeah. Seth says, there has to be an enemy and there has to be a reason they're bad and there has to be a reason you're good. I'm thinking about the stability of war, mm. maybe related to, to hearts and minds. I think there is also... Yeah, related to hearts and minds, to sustain a war, you have to have some kind of mental health amongst your amongst your side, whether it's mm. hope or just comfort that is provided. So, like for civilians, it would be comfort that is maintained, mm. and it's like the war's doing okay. And for the soldiers, I think there's a certain way of mental health of like you see some bases out uh, I've seen overseas that they have theaters, you know, basically big tents where they throw a projector up and they can watch movies. Yeah. Uh, soldiers overseas when they're just chilling at base playing Dungeons and Dragons together or whatever, having freaking uh, celebrity people come in by helicopter yeah, yeah. to just, to just, you know, check out the troops and everything. And that's kind of a, a cultural thing. Uh, when you're building your world, uh, depending, you know, if the combatants are, whether they're human or not, or, you know, or whether they're from Earth or from a different planet, uh, that sort of element to the war, kind of not the, not the, like, guns blazing part, but just kind of like the downtime of your, of your combatants, of your warriors, of your soldiers, can paint further details about your world. What do they do on their downtime? What different games do they play? What yeah. do they talk about? Do they talk about, you know, family at home? Do they talk about how many kills, marks they got on the side of their rifle? Yeah. Um, do they do they uh, make dares, basically, is the competition on the battlefield, you know, even? Do they make light of when they're actually on the killing field? Uh, I think in World War II, there was this thing called uh, Kilroy Was Here. Um, and even the origins are a little foggy, uh, but basically, you know, it it started out as just graffiti and, uh, it's basically the cartoon of like the little bald guy looking over a wall and his big nose is just hanging over the wall. Uh, people kind of recognize that uh, symbol that is, uh, Kilroy and that is during Roar 2 it was drawn on, you know, basically wherever the soldiers visited. So, you know, yeah. different bases, you'll see that little cartoon and Cure was here. Um, and to the point where people started getting surprised of where they were seeing it, because it would yeah. be like the second wave of troops and they're like clearing out, you know, making sure these bunkers are cleared and they see Kilroy's up on the wall, knowing that people ahead of them already sweep through, yeah, yeah, you know, or somebody's deep in enemy lines and hiding out in, you know, a barn. Yeah. The paratroop paratroopers were in there first. Yeah. And yeah, they'll, they'll be hiding in a barn and then look up and there's a kill It's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so, you know, yeah. and it was almost like, I don't know how true this was, but it could have, it was like a competition Dude. of how far, deep in enemy lines can you be i think there's a lot of boring elements to warfare that people forget about um like logistics uh is huge in war like being able to get resources to your troops feeding them mm-hmm. morale is important none of that really gets mm-hmm. thought about you know just battle normally there's more to war than battle i think is probably what this really is about right under all that stress and being in the killing fields how do they normalize their situation? I think the movie uh, Full Metal Jacket did a pretty good job illustrating that. Mm. You know that Family Guy popularized this song that bird 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 is the word bird 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 that was in Full Metal Jacket, oh, yeah, and yeah. it is played <clears throat> during a montage of you know them pushing the line. And there are, you know, guns are blazing, tanks are moving in, and they're hiding behind the cover. 
And as the, it's during Vietnam, so it's the quote, first televised war. So as the reporter with the camera is, you know, sweeping by uh, the, the soldiers, they're popping jokes and they're laughing yeah. as they're getting shot at, you know? Well, you, you can, so, you, yeah. A, a good, a good, um, a good way to think about it as well is like, uh, apparently the show Scrubs was far more realistic than we might assume um, in terms of the disposition of the doctors because they were always making like really bleak jokes and like they, they were having fun at their work. And I think the reality is, is like you either laugh or you cry, you know? Like, yeah. I think that's kind of how it is. I think you get this gallows humor that helps you get by. Like I knew, I knew a dude right. once there were mortar shells coming down and the dude comes running out of his, um, running out of his tent in his boxer shorts going and like waving his hands in the air and like running around like a crab as they're getting hit by mortar <laughs> shells. Like, and it, but I, I think he was reasonably confident that it wasn't right on top of them. But my understanding mm -hmm. is they, they were all ducking down, you know, and, dodging debris and whatnot and just like laughing at this idiot yeah. running around out there <laughs> i wanted to jump back slightly oh because i am really interested in this idea of what do people do when they're not fighting mm. because okay. we often have this idea of war in fantasy as it is the armies marching against each other and one of the more popular tropes, especially in fantasy, and even in sci-fi actually as well, is the idea that the enemy is this sort of unfeeling, endless beast that is seeking to devour. And so the, the, the fight is constant, yeah. right? You are you are constantly being assaulted by waves of creatures. And so the fighting is pretty much nonstop, total action. Hmm. Well, there are, a couple, there are a couple really interesting things about that. First of all, that's entirely unsustainable. Uh, the, simply the manpower problem is mm -hmm. like we think, oh, if I have a big country in my world, I can have a huge like waves of enemies attacking like in Lord of the Rings where they're battling at the foot of Mount Doom, right? I swear when Sauron falls over, there are just waves and waves and waves of gold armored people falling down for yeah. miles. And some of them yeah. are falling down and they're on a plateau that's just elevated above the ground. And I'm like, why did they put troops there? Like they're out of bow range. Like, why are you saying scale up to the top of that plateau? You know, they're going to yeah. fall off it. They probably had casualties, needless casualties because of Sauron blowing up. Um, anyway, oh, sorry, funny. carry on. <laughs> I, why so many men? They clearly didn't need that many. Well, blank him. Because it looks epic. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But epic mm -hmm. isn't realistic, right? No. And so, I mean, the... Yeah, when you're in that kind of situation where you have this sort of endless wave of enemy, whether it's a, um, you know, an alien bug or a tyranid or a, um, a zerg or whether it's, you know, endless waves of demons in your fantasy world, the, the logistics are impossible. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Boggles the mind. Yeah, and, and most... And in order to support an army of that size the amount of resources that you would need would, would absolutely crush the economy yeah. of a country. So here's an interesting thing, right? I've got data for you. Um, oh, yeah? Ooh. All right, this is good. Let's this hear it. Good. There's a spreadsheet. Um, so uh, <laughs> the, the, um, there's a demographer who I really, really want to get on this show. And I had uh, touched base with him uh, before. I'll have to chase him up again. But, um, Lyman Stone is a demographer who also really likes world building. He's written a load of stuff about it. So one of the things he did was he wrote down how Westeros, there is no way in Westeros that they could have raised armies of the sizes that they claim. 
And he did it based off population density in that region. And he, he has the whole thing laid out and effectively just establishes that it would just be entirely impossible for that to have occurred, which is interesting because mm-hmm. like George R. R. Martin, I obviously rate him on world building phenomenal. And yeah, I don't sure. think this detail would matter to anyone but a demographer. But um, he, he also, by the way, helped me figure out how many wizards there might be in the world of Harry Potter. <laughs> In, in Britain, he's. I've got a whole Twitter thread. I'll to, to distribute that thread because it was amazing. But anyway, it's. Um, yeah, you're. You're right. You're right. Because we want these big epic conflicts, right? We want to use as much uh, as much of that awesome Rome total war engine as we can get. That's and right. so you know, you're just dumping shed loads of people on the battlefield, and that sure as heck happened. I mean, the Persian army uh, fielded. Uh, reportedly, you know, in in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, on, on which the- is which is crazy considering that your average ration for a soldier at that time was two to three pounds of grain plus some sort of lard plus some sort of meat plus some sort of wine maybe cheese or a vegetable so like that's per day per person yeah can you imagine if you had an army of let's say a hundred thousand people the amount of support staff that you would need in order to move a camp? How many carts are you going to need? How many pack animals are you going to need? Even if all of your soldiers are packing their own stuff, if you gave each of them a 60-pound pack that was just filled with food, your army could last, what, 20 days? And that's assuming that, you know, that they're, willing to, they're willing to march at any considerable speed. I know, right? Uh, it's huge. Mm-hmm. Like it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's apparently, so the battle of Thermopylae was one off the back of the Athenian Navy functionally. Like it was, it was lost, but it was lost with so many casualties on the part of the Persians that it was, and it was functionally a loss by the end of it because they held the, uh, they held the pass of Thermopylae for, for long enough. But what wound up happening was um, they bought enough time. So when the Persians got to Athens, it was empty. So they just arrived at Athens at the Athenian Navy and just moved everybody. <laughs> so they were just like rats, you know. And you think about that though, like that whole um, that that whole thing of just being able to field an army like that is is a demonstration of power and not just power mm-hmm. but organization. You know, you're yes. talking about the number of bureaucrats and bean counters you need for that. You need an That's army right. of accountants to like support your army, not to mention like pay structure and actually equipping mm. them. So all their equipment matches that right. that was unheard of for most of humankind was having I mean, soldiers that all had the same swords and shields. That was Rome's advancement. Yeah. Their, their entire technological advancement was pretty much wrapped up in the fact that all of their soldiers were equipped exactly the same and their logistics were better than anybody else's in the entire world. Yeah. <laughs> And, and, and so I actually wrote like a little blog series about this on our on our on our website, which basically was just like, "Hey, here's all the boring crap that happened in war that no one cares about." Because it's like even just <laughs> fielding siege weapons is insane. Like the idea that you have a trained team that is ready to deploy a siege weapon. So th- there was this there was this whole thing once where they were looking at old I- I- equipment schematics for like um, for uh, cannon. And they were and they were trying to figure out what these two guys standing on the side of the cannon were for because they had all these drawings of it and they were just like oh that's neat you know this 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 and this and we see how this comes together and how this launches and uh, so the military as a matter of course with, with when deploying artillery would always have this these two these two knuckleheads just standing there nearby because that's like what you did they found out those guys were there for the horses. <laughs> they don't use they, right. <laughs> and they weren't like and they weren't using them like later on but it was like they were there for the horses that was the reason you had them there but decorum stated though they needed to be there so it's like this there are these really really odd things that occur as part of like military tradition and that sort of discipline as well is vital right. the idea that you can force march somebody and that they are fit and that you also have armies of professional soldiers as opposed to uh you know the whole thing in uh, 300 uh it requires a lot of military precision to when you turn to the Spartans say, what is your profession for them all to go instead of soldier? Cause that would be awkward if if one of them was like soldier, 
<laughs> soldier no <laughs> like you know, <laughs> one guy um but like you know they, when they're talking to the macedonians and whatnot and they're like i'm a potter i'm a smith and the other one's like what spartans what is your profession they're all soldiers and they're all disciplined and they all stand in rank and file and that's why they knew how to do the whole thing where they're lift the shield poke the baddie lift the shield poke the baddie that was the right. that was the whole thing they they did it was the phalanx very effective but only effective because they're soldiers and, which is boring the one the one spartan in the back in the back says i, I drive the food cart yeah <laughs> it's like i brought the food well that's yeah. so that's what's crazy about about this whole idea Just take take the middle ages right we have this idea of like armies of knights what most people don't remember is that those those knights were very rarely professionals, right? They they weren't professional soldiers. They were they were lords. They were people who had land who controlled other people, and were rich enough to buy a suit of armor. And then they trained with it because they didn't want to get embarrassed when they go went out to war. Yeah. But but the idea of having an army comprised solely of professional knights was simply too expensive for for lords to support right yeah. now you might if you're the you know if you're the ruler of france you might be able to gather together like at the battle of hastings right you might be able to gather together thousands of knights to try to crush the british mm -hmm. but those each of those individual people is in and of themselves, a landholder, somebody who who owns farms, somebody who owns uh, woods, you know, somebody who owns territory, and so you can't simply command them the way you would a professional soldier. It's 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 a totally different way of doing battle, right? It's a totally different way of of um, organizing troops, and so when we look at a, let's say a fantasy world with a with a feudal political structure right right then and there we automatically have challenges to overcome if we want to field large armies of a particular kind heavily armored you know heavy armor knights right mm. and and part of part of the challenge with all of this that that are are really strict world building friends get uptight about is that the amount of resources that you need in order to support a standing army is unbelievable and when you're in a low technology world you simply don't produce enough resources to make that a viable option all of the time so in essence, what you're saying in some ways is like, it is a technological development in and of itself to be able to have a standing army. Yeah, absolutely. So, so China in the warring states, so this is before China has, has formed, right? China is, is broke. The territory of China is broken out into all of these different countries and, and they went and they fought against each other. And according to, according to some reports, there were, there were something like 60 to 70 million casualties through the warring states period through this like 200 year period the only reason they could do that is because they produced so much food and they produced so many people so most of these fights were literally them going through the countryside rounding up as many farmers as they could and then smashing them into each other and then having small groups of highly trained, highly armored units that would go in and wipe out huge portions of their opponent's army, mm. right? But the only reason they could do that at that scale is because they had the food production to match it. And yeah. even there, within, within two generations, three generations, the scale of the battles got, got exponentially smaller because they had killed so many people that there were no farmers to grow the food. <laughs> and so, so one of the biggest challenges in that period of time was not, hey, can we win this battle? Yeah. It's, can we win this battle with few enough casualties that we're not going to go home to a famine? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so, so 
so yes, I think what you're saying, like you, you condensed it very nicely. The ability to, to have a standing army requires technology that doesn't necessarily exist in a, in a feudal world. Yeah. So Marcus, what's on your mind, man? Well, uh, it's, it's very fascinating that a war, especially if you, if your world is, you know, within the world is in a multi is in a long term war. There's a lot of things that goes beyond the logistics. Uh, we touched on political stuff earlier yeah, on. Yeah. Uh, and as we, as we keep pushing this extreme uh, yeah. one way, uh, with you know technological advancements and stuff and just sheer ridiculous resources i want to push it even further because i think we'll do our fans a disservice if our episode talking about the state of war does not take us into the grim darkness of the 41st <laughs> millennium where there is only yes war yes <laughs> because there's in corners of the nerdum in corners in corners of the nerd sphere there is frustrated nerds everywhere because everybody likes to pit up against, you know, their favorite soldiers from whatever uh, stores that they like, whether it's stormtroopers, whether it's uh, the, the troopers from, um, oh shoot, what's that movie with the bugs? Uh, oh, Starship Troopers. Starship mobile, Starship mobile, troopers. mobile infantry. You know, who, right, who, who had the best marines who had the best soldiers and you know what every time the space marines from warhammer 40k come in the space marines always win well i'll, I'll tell you this they, they, they got a slack handful of redundant organs and a chain sword like they're like no one's <laughs> yes. stopping them like they're not they're not human if you have a powered plate armor that's basically made out of the same stuff as your tanks yeah and you're like nine feet tall. <laughs> out of the armor. That's the thing. Right. <laughs> yes. Out of the armor. You're Before you put your heels on, tall. you're nine feet tall. Wait till they have them platforms on. And you shoot out bullets that explode as your primary ammunition. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very interesting because, because this whole world of Warhammer 40k depicts a whole constant state of war is over centuries. Their heroes actually almost near immortal. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They operate on a much higher level of war and how they wage it, how they understand it, mm -hmm. and a much higher level of enemies that they do. So everything, every all the logistics, all the technology, all the all the lethality to everything it's mm -hmm. cranked up past 11 because it needs to be for well, that it's, universe it's, it's gone well past 11 it's at 40k but the um <laughs> <laughs> yes well played yes but the, the thing the thing the thing that i love about warhammer 40k right is like there's not a reason that they don't just burn planets down left right and center except this they keep losing stuff right like they keep finding like they wander around and they're like we would blow up this planet but there's an artifact here. <laughs> like, they're like, yes. If you'd yes. stop Wonder fighting for long enough to quit losing all your crap, you could just burn planets hey. when Tyranids landed on them and have done with it. Hey, but, oh, hey. there's an artifact. Exterminus, exterminus is a viable option. <laughs> what's, what's really fascinating about that, though, is that on the surface, it almost feels like lazy world building to say, oh, everybody's just fighting all the time and we have sort of endless resources to fight with. What's really interesting though, is when you actually start digging into the, the 40K universe, you realize that they have solved this problem by simply assigning planets as a particular sort of resource hub. So they have hive worlds, which produce mm. people for the Imperial Guard. Yeah, They have agriculture worlds, which produce food for feeding all of these, you know, all of these soldiers. Yeah. They have, they have their forge worlds, which produce the war machines that they use to fight. But what's really interesting is, is that, you know, you have the space Marines who are sort of these heroic uh, master combatants, right? And master tacticians. And then you have the Imperial Guard their entire mode of operation is simply 
clog the treads of the enemy war machine with bodies, right? If we throw mm-hmm. enough people at them, yeah, then then they're not going to be able to make progress. And then once they've stopped making progress, we can shell them. But here's here's the deal, right? So th- this is the thing. You, we were talking about the way that weapons have expanded, right? So they're going to do a prequel series to Game of Thrones soon. And th- this all ties together, so bear with me. So um, they're, they're talking about, it, it is to do with the Dance of Dragons, which is a civil war between the um, Targaryen factions, one called Blackfire and the other one called Hightower. Um, and the deal with it is that one side's got a shed load of dragons. The other side has the cities. And so the problem that the guys with the dragons have is they're like, you know what dragons are good at? Burning stuff. You know what they suck at? Holding cities. (laughs) So like you run into the same problem, right? Like the space Marines are not there to hold territory. No. You send in the Imperial Guard when you want to lock some stuff down, right? Because they've got right. the really big tanks. I mean, the Marine, right. the, the Marines have the the in essence the light, lightly armored stuff in a way. It's it's to move quick, it's to get on the field, get there fast, take the thing, burn it down, whatever needs done. And then they go, Imperial Guard, bring in your giant tanks and just hold the position. Mm-hmm. And like that's the mentality with it, is that like one of the things is like I was I was reading this the other day. Um, so um, technology differences, and we've discussed this a little bit in the faster than light thing, don't always mean as much as we think it does, right? Right. Like, and in reality, like uh, you, you talk about like the disastrous campaign in, in Iraq, despite the advanced capabilities of the American soldiery and the, the weaponry, if people do not wish to have you there, you're not right. going to be able to stay. It's just not going right. to happen. You can't do it, which is like the hearts and minds thing, which is ironically, we get that from the campaign slogans of that era where they were saying, we're coming in to win the hearts and minds of these people. And it was, right. it was unsuccessful and like in large part. And that is a huge element of this. It's morale. It's not even just morale on one side. It's morale on the other side of, mm-hmm. of, of the, of the, uh, occupied or conquered people you actually have to have them believe this worked out well for them <laughs> like in right. the end you know mm-hmm. uh, look so, at east and west berlin even so example. you either do that or you take the 40k approach which is yeah no we don't take prisoners we just like we come in we crush you and then we settle humans here yeah yeah complete xenophobia that's a huge one they have an other. They have an enemy. That's yeah. everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're not human. Well, 50 trillion screaming fanatics can't be wrong, Seth. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's really, oh, what's really interesting, though, is that you also have, though, the Tau in the 40K universe. I don't know if anybody has picked up on this yet, but I am the hugest 40K nerd ever. I love 40K <laughs> so much. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, you also have the Tau, though, and the Tau their slogan is for the greater good them and grindelwald right i'm sorry (laughs) i mean some people think they're secretly demons of zinch but you know anyway they're this fairly young race eight thousand years of history and they wage war very effectively through technology but they're constantly sending diplomats out right so they're in this constant state of war because the imperium is in a constant state of war Right, the humans are trying to kill everybody that's not human, and the Tau keep going around being like, "Hey, you can join our alliance. Hey, you can join our alliance." And some humans are saying, "Hey, maybe that's not a terrible idea. I mean, the Imperium doesn't care about us." And then a chain sword bursts out of their chest. That's right. <laughs> Nobody expects the Imperial Inquisition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing. And then an Inquisitor lands on your planet and is like, "Hey, what are these aliens doing?" And was like, uh oh, uh oh, Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's one way. It's honestly like, in in fact, even the Imperial Guard uh, retain morale with um, commissars just shooting fools, right? Yeah. Like they, they're just like, okay, we're just going to execute one, and that unfortunately is a time honored strategy right. of of retaining of retaining loyalty. Is you we we hang deserters, right? Right. And like that mm. that is another you know war war is forever ugly. And and I think there's a couple of things that we've kind of drawn out of this is that. Um, one is we, we have our we have our big three right the hearts and minds you have to have an enemy to fight 
You have to have the resources to do it. We realize that war is like both boring and terrifying at the same time. Like it's both of those things. There's long periods of time where like an army's got to get from point A to point B and that's a lot of marching, right? Like, and that holds true in any era. But even like then, some of the best technological advancements wind up being like social ones. You know, it's like logistic trains and bureaucracy and accounting and like things like that wind up actually being super significant now, on top of the cool stuff. Like how do we make our swords sharper and pokier, you know? And um, I, I think Warhammer actually does a pretty good job of like actually checking a lot of these boxes. <laughs> and That's that right. hearts and minds, no problem. They'll be on a skewer if you don't follow me. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like an enemy to fight. Every Everyone that's not human, we got it going. Resources, hive worlds, forge worlds, we've got farm worlds, we got it all worked out. And um, then just the political reality of just like managing war and getting them together. I love the Game of Thrones thing, assembling bannermen. Perfect example. Mm -hmm. Not all of the people that lead your people are on your side or agree with what you're doing. And uh, Rob Stark's great failing in that in in the uh, in the books in the TV show was that he was a bad lord, not that he was a bad fighter. He was always a good tactician. Um, he just really really sucked at managing his 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 lords, and so they stabbed him in the back and other places when they could. And um, that <laughs> was that. That's why that wound up going badly, even though he's a good man. And I, I think these are just kind of the realities of war that you have to deal with. And you can take them and you can apply them as, to the soldiery. How are the soldiery entertained? How do they keep themselves going? You can also apply that to the citizens. What is it that keeps the citizens contributing to the war effort? Is it the fear of being outed as a traitor, being outed as a war criminal or a deserter? Is it possible that um, the people just genuinely believe their cause is righteous and just and that it should be brought to an end and they believe their enemy should be crushed? Maybe they're more afraid of the enemy than they are of their own people. And that's why they keep going. So these are all things that are great tavern discussions in a TTRPG. What do you think of the war? How's it going? What do you believe in? And those things can be communicated subtly in the backdrop of nearly any given scene, but war should be present because war, when it's around, it's unavoidable. It's in everything. Why are there no men in the tavern? How come all the women are at work? <laughs> you know, like in, in, depending on what era of history you're in, big societal changes can come from that. So I think guys, we've covered it. And I think we've kind of, we've, we've, we've done it some justice. We ended with some f heavy 40K. And yeah. so uh, I think I'm just going to go ahead and close us out here. Thank you so much for joining us on another episode. We're so thrilled to have you. I think we could probably do a ton more on this topic. If you want that, totally. let us know. We are for all sure. over the Facebooks and the interwebs. So I've been James. I'm Seth. I'm James. And I'm Marcus. I'm still James. Thank you for joining the Worldcraft Club podcast. Please go ahead and like us, subscribe to us on your preferred app. And if you use iTunes, rate us five stars if you think we're worth the rating. It really helps our numbers. If you're listening here, you're missing out on half the content along with loads of other goodies. So please consider becoming an exclusive club member at our Patreon page, starting at as low as $5 a month. If you have any questions, you can go ahead and jump on our webpage, worldcraftclub.com, to get the latest updates on our blog. We're also available on Twitter and Instagram. This has been the Worldcraft Club podcast. Thank you for listening.